You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages on the new life in Christ that John Stott presented at Founders Week 1977. John Stott was an author and rector emeritus of All Souls Church in London, England. Now, here is John Stott on Today in the Word radio. I'm glad to say we have a slightly shorter passage to study together this morning, only 16 verses. And we open our Bible at the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4. For three chapters, the Apostle has been describing both the new life that God has given us in Christ and the new society that he is creating through Christ. It is a magnificent vision, as we have seen. And now he comes to the new standards which he expects of the new society. He thus turns from exposition to exhortation, from what God has done to what we must do, from doctrine to ethics, from the Christian faith to the Christian life. And he begins, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, beg you to live a life that is worthy of God's call. God has called you to be the new society. Now, what is a life that is worthy of that divine call? Well, the new society that God has called into being has two major characteristics. First, it is one people. Jew and Gentile together, people of all nationalities, races, cultures, united in Christ. It is one people, the single family of God. Second, it is a holy people, a special people, distinct from the secular world outside, a people called to belong exclusively to God. Therefore, Because God's people are one people, they must manifest their unity. And because God's people are a holy people, they must manifest their purity. Unity and purity are the two fundamental features of a life that is worthy of God's calling. We all know that during the last half century or so, we've heard a great deal about church unity, about the reunion of the churches and the unity of Christendom and so on. So I think it should be particularly helpful for us to look again at this classic passage in the whole Bible on the unity of the church. I believe it will prove a healthy corrective to a number of misleading ideas. There are four particular truths about the unity of the church, the unity of the family of God, which Paul outlines in this passage. And these are related to the four words charity, unity, diversity, and maturity. Those seem to be the four key words of this section. First, The unity of the church depends on the charity of our behavior or conduct, verses 1 and 2. 
I beg you to lead a life that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all lowliness and meekness and patience and forbearance and love. Five moral qualities, five aspects of charity, of our love or brotherly love for one another in the family of God. It's significant then that when talking about the unity of the church, this is where the apostle begins. And we should begin in the same place. Too many people begin with structures of unity. Mind you, I myself believe that structures have their place and their importance. You cannot have a church that is totally unstructured. Such a concept is a contradiction in terms. A church must have some kind of structure, and structures of unity have their place and their importance. But that is not the place to begin. And if we have to choose, the moral is more important than the structural. So what are these moral qualities without which no kind of unity is pleasing to God? He begins with lowliness, a grace much despised in the ancient world and much despised in the modern world as well. I'm myself convinced, not only from Scripture, but from my own experience, that pride lies behind all discord, that wherever relationships break down, vanity is to be found somewhere, while the greatest single secret of concord and harmony in our relations with one another is lowliness of mind. Perhaps you'll allow me to be a little personal. It doesn't come easily to the English, you know, to be personal. We're very shy people, you know that, don't you? Very reserved. You know all about this sober British reserve. All right, well, I'm an example of it as I stand before you this morning. Nevertheless, I would like to say this to you. I have found that the people I instinctively like the first time I meet them are the people who seem to give me the respect I think I deserve. And the people I instinctively dislike are the people who treat me like dirt. Am I the only person who feels like that? Anybody else feel like that? Is it just a, a British uh, characteristic? No, I think it's a characteristic of our fallen nature. Pride lies behind all discord, and lowliness is the secret of concord. So that's the first thing. Then meekness. Meekness is the gentleness of a strong personality who is nevertheless the master of himself and the servant of others. Patience, which is long-suffering towards aggravating people of whom the churches seem to be full. Fourthly, forbearance, which is mutual tolerance. And fifthly, love that embraces the preceding four is the crown and sum of all virtues, the love that constructively seeks the welfare of the other person and sacrifices itself in order to serve. Now, we may be quite sure that no unity in the family of God and in the new society is pleasing to God unless it is the child 
of charity, of lowliness, meekness, patience, forbearance, and love. Unity depends on the charity of our conduct. That's number one. Two. The second thing Paul emphasizes here is that the unity of the church arises from the unity of our God. Indeed, Christian unity is a reflection of divine unity. It's the unity in the Godhead that is to be reflected in the unity of the people of God. Verses 3 to 6. Here he speaks of seven different unities. You'll be familiar with this passage. He says from verse 4 on, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Seven unities. When you look at them carefully, you will find that three of them refer to the three persons of the Trinity. One spirit is the Holy Spirit. One Lord is the Lord Jesus. One God and Father of us all. So three unities are the unity in the Godhead itself. And the other four unities that he mentions concern our Christian experience in relation to the three persons of the Godhead. I think it will be simplest if I bring this truth to you in three affirmations. A. There is one body, verse 4, because there is only one Spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. And if he dwells in you and you and you and you and you and you and in me, then it is the one Spirit who creates the one body. There is only one Holy Spirit in dwelling and animating the whole body of Christ and every member of the body. So there is only one body because there's only one spirit in dwelling, the one body. B, there is only one hope, one faith, and one baptism because there is only one Lord Jesus who is the object of all three. Who is the object of our Christian hope? Why, Jesus Christ who is coming back one day in great magnificence. And it is he whom we're expecting and for whom we are waiting in hope. He is the object of our hope, and there's only one hope because there's only one Lord Jesus for whom we are hoping. Who is the object of our faith? Jesus. Every Christian who is a believer has put his trust in Jesus Christ, and there's only one faith because there's only one Lord who is the object of that faith. And there's only one baptism because who is the object of our baptism? We're baptized into Jesus Christ. And being baptized into Christ, every Christian is baptized into Christ. So there's only one baptism because there's only one Jesus Christ into whom we're baptized. So just as there is only one body because there's one Holy Spirit, so there's only one faith, hope, and baptism because there's only one Lord Jesus. See, there is only one family, one Christian family, embracing us all, verse 6, because there's only one God and Father of us all, who is above all and in all and through all. So I could now put the same truth the other way around in the customary order in which we think about the persons of the Trinity. 
and I could say the one father creates the one family. The one Lord Jesus creates the one faith, hope, and baptism. And the one Holy Spirit creates the one body. And there can only be one Christian family, one Christian faith, hope, and baptism, and one Christian body, because there's only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can no more multiply churches than you can multiply gods. The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of the Godhead. It is no more possible to split the church than it is to split God. Oh, I know what you're thinking. When I state the matter so boldly and so dogmatically, a question inevitably comes up in your mind. You say to me, it's all very well saying we cannot split the church any more than we can split the Godhead because we seem to have been extremely successful in doing the very thing you say we cannot do. So what about the disunity of the church in the light of what Paul is saying here, that there is only one family, one body, one faith, one baptism? In the light of all that, what are we to make of the visible disunity of Christendom? Well, I think there is only one way to answer your question. Thank you for asking it. And that is this, we have to draw a distinction between the church's unity as an invisible reality that is present in the mind of God. God says to himself, I've only got one church, I'm one God, the Father, and I have one family, and the unity of the church is ever present as an invisible reality in the mind of God. And on the other hand, the church's disunity which is a visible appearance contradicting the invisible reality. We are one, one people, one society, the family of God. For God says so, and indeed we sense it when we come together for such an event as Moody Founders Week. We come here from many, many different ecclesiastical traditions, many different churches and denominations, and yet we sense our unity. We are one in Christ Jesus. And yet, and yet, outwardly and visibly, we belong to different churches which even sometimes work in competition and even sometimes one has to whisper it in hostility to one another. Well, the Apostle Paul recognizes this strange phenomenon and it's very interesting that in this very passage in which the indestructible unity of the church is so emphatically asserted, the possibility of disunity is also acknowledged. So far, I've said nothing about verse 3. In verse 3, it tells us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit by means of the bond of peace. That is a very strange exhortation when you come to think about it. Because how can Paul urge his readers to maintain a unity which he goes on to say is indestructible? If it's indestructible, what is the sense in telling us to preserve it? You don't need to preserve something that cannot be destroyed. 
Moreover, why does he tell us to maintain something which the Holy Spirit has created and neither man nor demon can destroy? You see, when you meditate on this exhortation, there's something strange about it. So what does it mean? Seems to me, again, there's only one possible answer to that question. That to be eager to maintain this unity must mean to maintain it visibly. That is, by the concrete relationships of love, by means of the bond of peace, by harmonious relationships with one another. Paul's exhortation to us is to preserve in these relationships of peace and love the unity that God has created and nothing and nobody can destroy. Paul is urging us to demonstrate to the world that the unity that we say exists indestructibly is not the rather sick joke it sounds, but is a true and a glorious reality. Now allow me to illustrate what I mean, and I think you'll grasp it more clearly if I do. I want to introduce you to a family, not an American family. I don't know such families in America, but an English family, the Smith family. Mr. and Mrs. Smith and their three boys, Tom, Dick, and Harry. (laughs) Now, there can be no doubt that they are one family. Mr. and Mrs. Smith are legally married, married in the sight of the law, married in the sight of God, and they have three sons, legitimate sons who are brothers one of another and sons of the same parents. There is a nuclear family unit. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, three boys, brothers. And the unity of the family is created by the facts of marriage and birth. Ah, But in the course of time, the family disintegrates. The father and the mother quarrel, and in the end they get a divorce. The three sons also quarrel with one another, as well as with their parents, and they separate. And they dislike each other so much that the three boys even go to live in different countries. They never meet, they never write to one another, they never call each other on the telephone, they repudiate one another, so determined are they to do so that they even change their names by deed poll. There is a disintegrated family. Five people who were united by marriage and birth who've just simply disintegrated. Now, supposing we were cousins of the Smith family, what would we do? Would we shrug our shoulders and smile sweetly and say to one another, well, never mind, doesn't matter, you know, there's still only one family. We'd be quite right if we said that. That is entirely true. They are still one family in the sight of God. I reckon Mr. and Mrs. Smith are still married in the sight of God. They're divorced. And I reckon the three boys are still the sons of that father and mother, and they are still brothers of one another, although they have repudiated each other. So would we do that? Would we say, well, it doesn't matter. Oh, yeah, they're disintegrated, but who cares? There's still only one family. I don't think we would say that. I think it would be very irresponsible if we were to say that. So what would we do? Why, we'd do our best to get them to reconcile to one another. 
we'd say to them, look, you are one family in the sight of God. How about maintaining the unity of the family by means of the bonds of peace? How about getting reconciled to one another? How about demonstrating to the rest of the world that you are the one family you are? You are one family. How about showing it? Now, I think that is exactly what Paul is saying here to the family of God. He says, you are one family. There is one God. He has one family. How about showing it? Now, of course, this is a very big question that we haven't time to go into this morning as to what that means in practice. And probably we wouldn't altogether agree with one another about what kind of visible unity we think would be a proper goal for Christian endeavor. Certainly we would agree that it would have to be a unity in truth and that we cannot sacrifice or compromise the truth in order to seek unity. Nevertheless, I want to draw your attention to this exhortation of Paul that we are to be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Frankly, I don't see too much evangelical eagerness about the unity of the church. I think if we obey the word of God in Scripture, we should be more eager about visible unity of some kind than we customarily are. Well, that's two. One, about the unity of the church. It depends on the charity of our conduct. Two, it arises from the unity of our God. Three, it is enriched by the diversity of our gifts. Seven to twelve. The contrast between verse 6 and verse 7 is very vivid. Verse 6 speaks of God as the Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. Four times the word all is repeated. Seven begins, but grace was given to each, to each of us. So the apostle turns from all of us to each of us, and so from the unity of the church to the diversity of the church. And he is deliberately qualifying what is written about unity. We are not to imagine that every Christian is an exact replica of every other, as if we'd all been mass-produced in some celestial factory. On the contrary, the unity of the church is a rich and colorful diversity, not only in terms of our temperamental and cultural diversity, but also, and this is his point here, in terms of our gifts and therefore of our service or our ministry. For the variety of gifts that God gives to us in the church enriches our common life. These gifts are the charismata. And it is, of course, from that word that the now popular word charismatic has been derived. Now, I realize that this is uh, an emotional uh, subject when anybody talks about the charismatic movement and so on. But let's try not to get too hot under the collar. Uh, let's just relax and uh, think about these things uh, biblically and thoughtfully and charitably. And as we think about the diversity, don't let's forget about the unity that we've just talked about and the charity as well. I personally don't uh, doubt, although I'm not committed to the charismatic movement and I don't agree with some of their distinctive theological positions, Yet I don't myself doubt that God has used the movement 
to bring new life to certain individuals and to certain churches. Indeed, I don't think one can deny that if one opens one's eyes to what is going on in the world today. Nevertheless, I'd like to introduce my remarks by saying I think it is a pity we call the movement the charismatic movement or that they call it that themselves because no group or movement within the church ought to steal the word charismatic. Properly understood, the whole church is a charismatic community because the whole church is the body of Christ and every member of the body is a gifted member of the body, that is, has a charisma. The charisma is a gift, and God gives a gift to every member of the body of Christ. So the whole church is the gifted body of Christ, and we believe in an every-member ministry. So the whole church is a charismatic community. We may have a different understanding of the charismata and which are the really important ones, but let us agree that every biblical Christian must believe in charismata, gifts that God gives to his church. All right, well, what is told us in this passage about charismata? I bring you three things. A, the giver of these spiritual gifts is the ascended Christ. Verses 7 to 10. In verse 8, the ascended Jesus is likened to a military hero who returns after a victorious campaign with booty and captives in his train. He rides in a triumphal procession into the capital city, and as he does so, he distributes gifts to his subjects. So Jesus, ascending in glory into heaven, distributes gifts and appoints people to ministries in his church. Jesus is the Lord of the church, bestowing these gifts and calling to different ministries. Now, there's no doubt that is what Paul teaches here. It is a great mistake, therefore, to think of spiritual gifts as exclusively the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It is a mistake to associate spiritual gifts too closely with the Holy Spirit or certain experiences of the Holy Spirit, because in this passage they are the gifts of Jesus Christ, while in Romans 12 they are the gifts of God the Father. It is always a mistake to separate the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because together they are involved in every aspect of the church's well-being. That's A. The giver is the ascended Christ. B. The character of these spiritual gifts is very varied. Some people talk about the charismata as if there were only three tongues, healing, and prophecy with which they seem to have become so obsessed that they don't bother much about anything else. Others think there are only nine I've seen a book and also a booklet called The Nine Gifts of the Spirit. I don't doubt the sincerity of the authors who want to draw a parallel with the ninefold fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And it's perfectly true in one of the lists of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, nine are mentioned. But there are five lists of charismata in the New Testament. 
Two in 1 Corinthians 12, one in Romans 12, one here in Ephesians 4, and one in 1 Peter 4. And if you tot them up from the five lists, at least 20 are mentioned in the New Testament. And they are mentioned in such a random and a haphazard way that there is no suggestion that even these 20 constitute an exhaustive list. I believe there are many more charismata than those that are mentioned in the New Testament. And some of them are very prosaic, like doing acts of mercy and giving your money. Did you know in Romans 12 that one of the charismata is giving your money? It's not a very popular charisma. (laughs) And as a matter of fact, I've never yet heard of anybody who's prayed to be given it. But it wouldn't be a bad thing if we did pray for that charisma. It's one of the charismata of the New Testament. And there are many others. I don't have time, of course, to go into them all. But there are five of them that are mentioned here. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, in the primary sense in which the New Testament uses the phrase apostles and prophets... I have no hesitation in saying that there are no apostles and no prophets in the church today. In the primary sense, Paul puts them at the top of the list here and at the top of the list in 1 Corinthians 12, and there he even enumerates them, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then he gives up the numbering. In the primary sense, there are no apostles comparable to the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John or the Apostle Peter and so on. And there are no prophets comparable to the canonical prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. If there were, we would have to add their words to the canon of Scripture and the whole church would have to be submissive to the authority of their teaching. But no, in this very letter of the Ephesians, in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says that the apostles and prophets are the foundation on which the church is built. The church is built on the foundation of the teaching of those apostles and prophets. And even an elementary knowledge of building and architecture will tell you that once the foundation of a building is laid and the superstructure is being erected upon it, you cannot tamper with the foundation. You cannot add to it. It's finished. So you cannot add to the apostles and prophets who are the foundation on which the church is built. Now, there may be a subsidiary gift, a secondary gift of apostleship, like missionaries sent from one church to another. There may be a subsidiary gift of prophecy. It's controversial as to what precisely that may be. But in the primary sense in which Paul is referring to them here, first apostles, second prophets, Let us not be afraid of maintaining, for it's plain in the New Testament that there is nobody comparable to those authoritative and infallible teachers in the church today. Ah, but there are evangelists who preach the gospel, and there are pastors who care for the church, and teachers who instruct it in the Word of God. And these are teaching gifts, which are very important indeed. Now see, the third thing about the gifts is the purpose of these gifts is service. Verse 12. Jesus gave these gifts for the equipment of the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So popular is that particular verse today 
that you probably don't need me to explain that the first comma should almost certainly be erased. It isn't for the equipment of the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ, period. It isn't three purposes, it's two. Eliminate the first comma, and you get for the equipment of the saints for their work of ministry, which is the immediate purpose of the gifts, especially of pastors and teachers, and then ultimately for the building up of the body of Christ into its maturity. So the main reason why Christ appoints pastors and teachers in the church is that they may equip God's people for their work of ministry. Now, I want especially any pastors here to listen carefully, and those of you who may one day hope to be ordained to the pastorate. The New Testament vision of the pastor is not of a man who jealously guards all the ministry in his own hands and successfully squashes all lay initiatives. The New Testament vision of the pastor is of a man who helps and encourages all God's people to discover and then to develop and to exercise their gifts inappropriate ministries. Or to sum it up more simply, instead of monopolizing all the ministry himself, his job is to multiply ministries, to equip God's people for their work of ministry. We believe in an every-member ministry. Oh, the pastor has his particular task in caring for the people, maybe in a team, a pastoral team, He has a responsibility to teach the Word of God to the people, but there are many other ministries, and his task is to equip God's people for their ministry and set them free in order to exercise ministries themselves. So, you see, what is your model of the church? What's your image of the church when you think of it? Some have a picture in their mind of a pyramid, And there is the pastor perched rather precariously on the pinnacle of his pyramid, a little pope in his own church, and everybody else in their serried ranks of inferiority beneath him. It is a totally unbiblical picture of the church. Other people have an image of the bus, a greyhound bus, and there is the pastor driving, hopefully awake, while all the congregation are drowsily asleep in the bus behind him. Another totally unbiblical image of the church. The image of the church the New Testament gives us is the body of Christ, with every member of the body gifted for some kind of ministry, including the pastor, but not exclusively. Well, so much then for spiritual gifts. Now I must come in my last few minutes to the fourth thing Paul talks about here regarding the unity of the church. We've seen it depends on the charity of our conduct. Two, it arises from the unity of our God. Three, it is enriched by the diversity of our gifts. And four, it necessitates the maturity of our growth. And although the church is one new humanity, it has to grow up into the stature of the fullness of Christ. And this is a growth into maturity, not just of the individual Christian, but of the whole body of Christ. 
church growth then, I mean the body of Christ grows like just as the human body grows. And church growth is not just a growth in numbers through the ministry of evangelists, it's also growth in maturity through the ministry of pastors and teachers. And if the church is to grow into maturity in Christ, then we as individuals, verse 14, must be no longer children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, uncertain what we believe, constantly knocked off our balance by the last preacher or lecturer we've listened to, or the last radio program we've tuned into, or the last book we've read. That's immaturity. A mark of maturity is that we grow up into settled theological convictions, settled biblical convictions, and we won't be like little children tossed about with every wind of doctrine. Instead, verse 15, we'll speak the truth in love. And the Greek word translated to speak the truth could equally well mean to hold the truth in love. <clears throat> and I would like to meditate for just a moment or two with you on that beautiful expression, which could well be the motto for every Christian today, or should be, holding the truth in love. Beautiful balance. You see, there are some Christians who are determined to hold the truth at all costs, and boy, don't you know it. And when they think they smell a heresy, their nose begins twitching, and the light of battle enters their eye, and they roll up their sleeves, and their muscles are rippling, and they're in for a fight. They love it, but there's not much love there. Or they hold the truth, and we honor them. They're champions for the truth, but without love. Then there are others who make the opposite mistake. They say, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Let's drown our doctrinal differences in the ocean of brotherly love. Let's just love one another. Forget about the truth. That's equally unbalanced. You see, truth is hard if it isn't softened by love. And love is soft if it isn't strengthened by truth. And the beautiful balance of the Bible is that we ought to hold the truth in love. And then the church will grow up by the combination of truth and love into the fullness of the stature of Christ. So I conclude. Here is God's vision for the church, his new society, characterized by charity, unity, diversity, maturity. Now Paul says, I beg you, I beg you to live a life that is worthy of this calling to be God's new society. Beloved brothers and sisters, I believe that all of us need a deeper discontent with the ecclesiastical status quo. In other words, don't let's be satisfied by the church as she is. She isn't worthy of her calling to be the new society. We need to grasp the kind of church that God intends, the new society that he has created, and then we shan't be content with what we see in our own churches today. Some people are content simply with the structures of unity, and have no comparable concern with humility, meekness, forbearance, 
and love. Others are content with the theology of unity. They say the church is only one, you know, theologically. It's quite clear that the church can never be more than one. And they don't see the anomaly of the disunity of the church that contradicts that unity. Others are content with a dull, boring, lifeless, colorless uniformity. And they don't see the variety that God intends by these different gifts that he gives in the church. And others are content with the progress of the church, slow as it is, and have no desire to see it grow into maturity in Christ. All this complacency, all this evangelical complacency with the status quo in the church is unworthy of our calling. So let us hear again this call of Christ as it comes to us through his Apostle Paul. I beg you to lead a life that is worthy of the call of God to be his new society. Let us pray. Again we thank you, Heavenly Father, for this your family throughout the world, for you are one God and Father of us all, and we are your one and only family. Forgive us, we pray, that we do not live a life that is worthy of our call to be the new society on earth. Help us, we pray, to get upon our conscience the sins and failures of the church today, that we may work and pray for the renewal and the revival of the church, that again we may live a life that is worthy of your call. We ask it for the glory of your great and wonderful name. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message on the new life in Christ that John Stott presented at Founders Week 1977. John Stott was an author and rector emeritus of All Souls Church in London, England. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.